0: Father, thank you for gathering us here tonight. It is indeed the truth that, uh, that you really are what matters. You really are what is uh, and what should be our passion. And yet we also come here tonight recognizing the ways in which we've fallen prey to the distractions of the world, as Matt talked about. So focus our attention now on your word. Help us hear what your word says to us as you gather us here to receive it. By the power of your Holy Spirit, I ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, go ahead and take a seat, gang. Good to be here with you tonight, and thanks for uh, coming out this evening to worship with us here at Epiphany. Um, we are entering into the first week of Lent, as Matt mentioned at the beginning. Of uh, our time tonight and that means that we are taking a break from the series that we were in. We had been, I mean, just kind of pounding through Revelation uh, over and over and over again. You know, all the destruction, all the wrath, all the judgment, all the things. And tonight, we're, I have to say, I'm, I'm kind of happy to get a little break. Uh, so we're gonna be looking at the various lectionary texts over the next six weeks as we celebrate this season. Uh, In case you don't know what Lent is, maybe that's not familiar to you or you didn't come from a tradition where that was celebrated, Uh, Lent really is just the 40 days before Easter in which we take a very intentional time to, well, remember why it is Jesus came. It's a a season of repentance is what it's meant to be. Not that we don't repent all the time in all aspects of our lives as Christians. That's just kind of part and parcel with what it means. But... This is a time of year where we just intentionally look to observe what it's all about. So, with that being said, I'm going to lead us through Matthew chapter four, verses one through eleven tonight. The words will be up on your screen. You can follow along. It reads like this: Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, I always like to make sure if there's a then there, that means that there was something coming before it. What came directly before this was Jesus' baptism, in which he is declared to be the one whom God is pleased with, okay, his very son. And so after this moment of sort of great victory uh, at his baptism and great accolades, instantly he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Verse 2, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. End of reading. Well, I remember some years ago now, my friend Jeff Proctor told me about a time that he went into Barnes & Noble with his son, uh, Christian, who was little at the time, maybe three or four years old. And when they went into the store, Christian saw a Buzz Lightyear doll that he really, really wanted. And so he asked his parents for the doll. He asked his parents for the toy. They told him no. So Jeff proceeded to go back to looking at books in the kids section. But Christian really, really wanted the doll. So he stood there in front of the Buzz Lightyear standee where the doll was at, and under his breath was mumbling to himself, no, no, no. Trying, trying so hard to ward off this overwhelming desire. No, don't do it. Well, I'd like to tell you, Christian won his battle with temptation, but unfortunately, The desire for the doll overtook him, so when my buddy Jeff eventually came to get him, the screaming and the crying started, and the scene ended with little Christian being carried out of the store, kicking and screaming. No matter how young or old you are here tonight, uh, you can relate to this kind of struggle. Because we all deal with struggle and with temptation. Right now, I have, I'm on a diet. I've been on a diet for the last number of weeks. I don't know how long now. And virtually every day, there is a moment at which I'm like, no, no, no. I mean, I was in the store earlier today, and, I, and, I, and the, a payday candy bar caught my eye. No. No, no. I mean, like, I I really, what I want to do tonight is I want to go home and I want to eat an entire pizza. What I'm going to do tonight is I'm going to eat a healthy choice frozen dinner. Because no, no, no. I'm not giving in. I'm not giving in to the temptation. But I have. I have. And that's just a small area of life. Oh, how many things we have given into. On a daily basis. So, historical context of the passage here. Jesus had just gotten baptized, like I said, whereupon the Father declares him to be the chosen one, the great one. And now you have this contrast of him being led into the wilderness. Now there is not a Jewish reader of this text at the time that wouldn't have known the scene that Luke is describing. According to New Testament scholar William Barclay, the area, the wilderness Luke describes was known simply actually as the devastation. That's what they called it, the devastation. And it's in the midst of the devastation that Jesus faces his own temptation, his greatest challenge yet. And what we're going to see through this story is three facets of temptation that we're going to deal with tonight. First, we'll talk about the allure of temptation. Why is it that we're drawn? Second, the reason that temptation happens. And third, the victory over temptation that Jesus has, all right? So the allure, the reason, the victory. That's the three-point outline you got for tonight for our talk about temptation. First of all, the allure. Look at how Satan comes to Jesus, we read, he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. You better believe him hungry. Forty days, forty nights, no food. The devil comes to him, if you're the son of man, command this stone to become bread. Second temptation, bow down to me, and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Third temptation, see if God will rescue you when you fall. And notice, there is nothing inherently bad, about these things that Jesus is tempted with. There's things wrong with what he's being asked to do, but the things he's being tempted to do, well, not so much. C.S. Lewis pointed out about sin that, quote, badness is only spoiled goodness. Badness is only spoiled goodness. So Jesus, I mean, we will see him later on in his ministry, indeed, multiply loans. Indeed, he will rule over every kingdom. And he will be rescued by his Father in the resurrection. It's just not yet. There are a number of things we could discuss from this, but that's the thing that sticks out to me here. Temptation is so often just another way of saying, why wait when you can have it now? Temptation is not being able to handle the not yet. It plays on our sense of entitlement. Remember the way that Satan came to the first people in the garden back in Genesis. God's trying to hide something from you. He doesn't want you to experience the truly good life, the real life. To the people of Israel, just a few short days after God had performed the miracle of rescuing them from bondage and slavery through opening up a path in the middle of the Red Sea, I mean, it couldn't get much more miraculous. Their need for instant gratification took over as they complained. Verse 2 In Exodus, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. I mean, God had literally just saved them and it's only been a little bit and they're tempted to throw in the towel. Temptation plays on our sense of entitlement and need for instant gratification. One of the uh, podcasts that I listen to, which are frequently becoming more and more throughout my week, as I'm on a train or as I'm in the car or wherever it seems, anytime I'm going somewhere, I've got a podcast on. One of them that I've listened to for a while is called Radiolab. And uh, a little while back, they discussed a study done by Walter Mitchell. You probably are familiar with it. The study was on willpower, and it was done back in the 70s, but it's quite famous even still today. What he did, what Walter did, is he brought a a bunch of kids in from ages 2 to 5 and tested their ability to delay gratification. Here's how he did it. He would put a child in a room with an Oreo cookie on the table in front of them, and he would say, now you can have this one Oreo cookie now, but if you wait... And don't eat this one. I'll give you two later. That's it. That was the test. What he recorded was kids basically being tortured, trying not to eat the one cookie. They would stare at the cookie. They would kick their legs frantically in their chair to avoid giving into the temptation. No. Some actually started crawling under the table to avoid the temptation. And then of course some couldn't withstand it at all and just ah, just gobbled it up and took the one cookie. Here was what is interesting about the study to me. The researcher ended up following these kids throughout their childhoods and even into their adulthoods to see how they were doing in life. And what he found out was that the kids that could delay their gratification the most tended to be doing remarkably better in their lives as grown-ups. They they found that the kids who waited longer did better on their SATs. Their parents reported that the kids who waited were well-behaved, and as adults, they tended to get better jobs and have better health. On the other hand, the kids who couldn't wait more often than not ended up having challenges and difficulties in life. Essentially, what, what the devil does in tempting us and in temptation to Jesus is he says, What well, why go through hardship? Why in Jesus' case, why go through the cross? Why go God's way when you can have it all now? All you have to do is bow down to me. Malcolm Mudridge, the famous journalist, wrote once, how easy for Jesus to have turned these stone loaves into edible ones, as later he would turn water into wine at a wedding feast. And after all, why not? The Roman authorities distributed free bread to promote Caesar's kingdom, and Jesus could do the same to promote his win-win. Jesus had but to give a nod of agreement, and he could have constructed Christendom not on four shaky gospels and a defeated man nailed to a cross but on the basis of sound socioeconomic planning and principles. Instead, turn down the offer on the ground that only God should be worshipped. So that brings us to the second thing we see about temptation from our text, and that's the reason for temptation. And there's sort of two perspectives on the answer to that question here. Uh, From Satan's perspective, ultimately, his goal is to get Jesus to fall in the same way he's gotten all human beings to fall, to doubt the love of his father. Satan knows that if he can get us to doubt God's good plan for our lives, then he's got us right where he wants us. Remember, in this temptation, twice Satan begins the statements If you are the Son of God, it's not much different from Satan's temptation of the first people in the garden, is it? Did God really say, He's holding out on you? Maybe He doesn't really love you. Are you really His Son? That's the devil's perspective on the temptation here. He thinks he's in control, and just like the first Adam, the second Adam will hopefully fall too. That's the goal. But of course, from heaven's perspective, it's an entirely different scene. I mean, remember, the Spirit led Jesus out into the wilderness here. This wasn't an accidental thing. Jesus wasn't some unsuspecting victim here. Just as at his baptism, he went under to fulfill all righteousness. So now that mission continues as he endures temptation. What Jesus is doing in this temptation is making up for every way that we indeed do fail. He is going to be the second and better Adam that won't give in. Whereas Israel failed in the wilderness, Jesus, Israel reduced to one, as it were, will succeed in the wilderness. It took them 40 years before obtaining the promised land. It took Jesus 40 days to defeat his enemy. As Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And why is it necessary for him to fulfill all righteousness? What's the point of that? Well, simply put, because in order to die for our sins, he must be the perfect substitute. He must be the true Passover lamb, spotless and pure, to be worthy. He is enduring temptation so that he might be qualified to actually go to that cross in our place. Hebrews 5 says In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to those who obey him. 2 Corinthians 5 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So the reason for the temptations that he endures is so that he might show himself to be worthy to save sinners like you and me. Now that leads to the third thing that we learn about temptation. We've talked about the allure of the temptation and the reason for why this happens. Now let's get to the final one, the victory over temptation. This victory doesn't come like we might expect for the Son of God, at least not yet. I can just imagine if, you know, I was to write this story... I might have Jesus start fighting physically with this devil character. You know, pull out some like divine lightsaber or something. Maybe some divine martial arts, mixed martial arts for that matter. I like that idea. Sounds interesting. I might go to that movie. Instead, it looks sort of uneventful. All we have is Jesus over and over quoting the Bible. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. It is written, you shall worship the word your God and him only shall you serve. It is written, it is said, you shall not put the word your God to the test. Jesus simply stands on the word of God wielding Not some divine lightsaber, but wielding the sword of the Spirit skillfully. Unlike the first people in the garden who forgot what God actually had said, or misremembered God's word, Jesus remembers exactly what his Father actually says. He simply stands on that word, and through doing so, gains the victory. He gains the victory over Satan for us, just as God promised would happen way back when the first Adam committed sin. Way back at the very beginning, when God's sort of handing out, you know, the, the kinds of things that the consequences that have come as a result of them choosing to rebel against him, he says this to the serpent, to the devil that's tempting Jesus here now. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. From the very beginning, Bible scholars and commentators have recognized that this was a prophecy talking about a special one that would come that would one day be able to defeat this devil character that had caused so much harm in God's world, that he would crush his head. The movie, The the Passion of the Christ, I think does a really great job of picturing this for us. If you saw the film, you might remember, it actually comes at the very beginning Jesus is pictured on his knees, praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's bowed down, praying in agony. Soon we see this very strange-looking character standing right beside Jesus, this scary-looking being. And he is saying to Jesus, you think you can really take all of men's sins Is God really your Father? Really? Soon, the devil lets out the same snake that had tempted our first parents in the garden. By this time of the scene, Jesus is sweating blood as is recorded in the Gospel of Luke. The stress of thinking about going to the cross is overwhelming. The snake is slithering closer and closer, looking as if at any moment he's going to strike. When Jesus stands up and crushes the snake's head, showing that he would not be defeated, that the victory is his. unlike you and I, that have to continually say no, 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 and still by the fourth time say yes. Jesus never, ever fails. He never, ever falls. And it's in him And by faith in him, that we can even be seen by God as if we've never failed at all. That's the glorious part about this story, is that Jesus doesn't just win temptation for himself to be glorified. He wins temptation so that as we believe in him, he covers us with his perfect righteousness so that when God looks at us, he doesn't see the ways that we've given in to eating 12 cupcakes or whatever the issue is, or the addiction that we continually struggle with, or the sexual habits that we know we shouldn't have. I mean, you name it, God through Jesus Christ doesn't see it because Jesus has won the victory for you. That's why this text is such good news. He's making up for all of our failures. So how how might you gain victory over temptation in your own life? I mean, I don't know that that the, there's an, a bunch of exhaustive, very technical things to say to you, but from this text, I think you can find a few things that might be helpful. Number one, pray. In Matthew 26 41, Jesus says to his disciples, Watch and pray that you might not fall into temptation. The Apostle Paul also urges the same thing in his letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. This temptation, all the temptation that comes to you is common to man, but God can provide a way out. Pray. Secondly, it's probably pretty helpful to know your Bible. I don't think it's an accident that this is the way that Jesus defeats the attacks of the enemy. I mean, you'll notice here in this passage, the devil twists the word of God. He actually does use the word of God in this text. In order to kind of counteract the ways that we can sort of rationalize away what we do, in order to counteract the ways that we can believe a false narrative that isn't actually from Scripture, it's good to familiarize yourself with what Scripture actually says. And then thirdly, when you're tempted, this might be most important. Remember, the victory has already been won for you. Satan is a defeated foe. He is right now. And you are free in Christ. You don't have to do what you're tempted to do. Christ proclaimed it is finished on the cross. The devil can only tempt, but he cannot make you do anything. Trust in Christ. He is your victory, and you are in him. Yes, you will promise you it's going to happen. You will fall into temptation again. But when you do that, remember to go back to Christ and trust again that his righteousness really does cover you. Because it'll be at that time that the devil does his worst work, in my opinion. This is how, this is how the system works, folks. He, he tempts you to do something, and then afterwards, when you've given in, you feel incredibly accused and guilty and like, oh my gosh, how can I be a Christian and do that? I, I must not be a Christian. I don't know if I'm really saved. Oh no. You know, and you go through this despair and this doubt. When you get there, listen to Luther. So important. When the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. In him you have a victory, always, every day. And that's where you'll find the strength you need to endure Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are our strength and you are our victory over temptation. Thank you for covering us in the righteousness of your son, Jesus Christ. It is because of that that we can come to you confident that you hear our pleas for mercy and for help and for forgiveness each and every day. So, Father, with that in mind, we pray the prayer that Jesus gave us with one voice saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the Glory forever and ever. Amen.